0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the University of Edinburgh, and welcome to this evening's Conan Doyle Medical Detectives Lecture. As some of you will know, the Medical Detectives Lecture series is really inspired by the fact that Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, qualified in medicine in this university, uh, and he was still a medical student when this lecture's theatre the oldest one still in use in the medical school, was finished. So we don't know for a fact that he was lectured to here, but he probably was. And he would say that uh, in devising Sherlock Holmes, he was very much influenced by the way of thinking of his medical teachers, particularly a man called Dr. Joseph Boyle, who drew together pieces of evidence and pieced them together to to formulate a diagnosis or to create advances. And really, advances have been created in this sort of a way up until the present time. We still tend to use this method of drawing together pieces of evidence to build up a picture that lets us make advances in research, and that's really uh, what we are talking about in this lecture series. The speaker this evening is Professor Stephen Laurie. This is Professor Laurie here, and he's going to talk about scanning for a diagnostic test for schizophrenia. (coughs) Professor Laurie.
1: Thank you very much, Eve. Okay, thank you for coming along on uh, what is quite a sunny evening, I imagine, still outside. I'm going to tell you about uh, schizophrenia. I'm hoping to show you a little bit about what it's like to have schizophrenia uh, and tell you a little bit about it from a medical perspective and uh, then probably in the second half of the lecture try and show you some of the examples of the research we've been doing to uh, develop brain scanning as a way of predicting and diagnosing schizophrenia and a couple of slides at the end to show you some of the amazing research possibilities that can come out of this kind of approach. So those of you who were here assiduously early were rewarded with uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, parts one through to five, uh, I think. And um, this was written as a tribute uh, by the band members of Pink Floyd, which Sid Barrett actually formed about uh, eight years before that track was released. Um, And he was undoubtedly the, the prime motivation, the key man in the band uh, at the time when they came to, came to fruition, when they came to, to fame really in 1967 with the release of the album uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which actually got into, I think, the top ten of the album's charts at the time. They were very influential uh, but Sid, for one reason or other, probably a combination of LSD uh, and some bad luck on the genetic front developed schizophrenia and despite their best intentions, the band, the band members just couldn't uh, work with him anymore and he seems to have uh, become uh, clearly developed, clearly psychotic, probably with schizophrenia, uh, in mid to late 1967, uh, and never really recorded with the band again after that. But they, they, he had a massive effect on them. Roger Waters was one of his best chums when they were when they were growing up together, uh, and it was um, him that coined, that, coined the, that wrote the lyrics to the track. Sid's nickname as an adolescent was uh, Crazy Diamond, um, but there is. No uh, other intimation that he may have been uh, mentally unstable or unwell. He seems to, prior to about 67, he seems to have been a very creative, charismatic, uh, and by all accounts, amazing young man. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, his schizophrenia did anything other than reduce, if not rob him, of his creativity. And that's uh, one of the myths about the illness that still abounds, I think, sometimes. And certainly if you read through the lyrics of the song, it's pretty clear from Roger Waters' perspective at least that he doesn't think schizophrenia did Sid any good. Uh, He can remember him when he was young, when he shone like the sun, but now there's a look in his eye like black holes in the sky. Um, And he's a target for faraway laughter. He reached for the secret too soon, cried for the moon is perhaps Roger's way of trying to understand in some figurative or metaphorical terms what might be going on. Uh, And people do want explanations for these kind of experiences. Um, but Sid was threatened by shadows at night and exposed to light, a raver and a seer of visions. Um, and the, uh, Sid's work, fortunately, has, has stood the test of time, unlike uh, some uh, crazy ideas from the 1960s about schizophrenia, for example. You may recognize uh, this uh, remarkably cool-looking, it has to be acknowledged, young psychiatrist, R.D. Lang. Um, who actually, his book, Divided Self, has stood the test of time relatively well because he was just arguing for an understanding of people with schizophrenia. And people kind of misread him a bit, but R.D. Lang's theories generally deteriorated as the the 60s wore on and his alcoholism got worse. Um, But he thought that schizophrenia was a voyage of discovery, which I don't think you'll find many people with schizophrenia will say that is the case. And certainly Thomas Saad's idea that schizophrenia is a sane reaction to an insane society is so wrong on so many different levels. Almost every word in that sentence is, you know, incorrect, um, other than perhaps the uh, prepositions. Uh, but the, the, the it's just uh, just a wrong-headed way of thinking about things. The other view that was quite common in the 1960s was that uh, there was the concept of the schizophrenic mum or the refrigerator mother, uh, and this doesn't seem much more than just blaming mums for not bringing up their kids right and them getting schizophrenia or, or autism was the other uh, diagnosis that this kind of concept was linked to. There's no evidence for any of these things. Um, so what is it like having schizophrenia? Well, rather than listen to people who may never have met anyone with schizophrenia, it's good to actually ask people themselves. And there's, fortunately, there's an increasing number of, of ways that people can get their experiences across. These are a selection of uh, recent first-person accounts from Schizophrenia bulletin, which has made us a habit of publishing these over the years. And so Peter Chadwick says in 2007, as my delusional system expanded and elaborated, it was not me that was thinking the delusion, it was the delusion that was thinking me. I was totally enslaved by the belief system. Everything confirmed and fitted the delusion, nothing discredited it. Indeed, the very capacity to notice and think of your refutory data was completely gone. Confirmation bias was galloping, and I could not stop it. And this sense of being out of control, of losing one's mind, if you like, uh, comes across in the other couple of accounts that I've selected here. So Erin Hawkes, um, who is actually a neuroscientist and continues to work despite um, quite severe episodes of schizophrenia from time to time, she says, uh, my delusions of the deep meaning included dietary demands. These are quite literal, as you will see. So she would eat carrots, because a car rots the environment, uh, uh, juice but only from concentrate, because concentrating is good, and cereal, because to see what is real is also a good thing. There's a hint there of what you sometimes hear in patient speech called thought disorder, which is a very literal way of expressing themselves and, and, jo- and joining uh, thoughts together that don't really go together. And then third of these selections is Clara Keane, who said in 2009, I feel or am disconnected, disintegrated, diminished. Everything I experience is through a dense fog created by my own mind, and yet it also resides outside my mind. I feel that my real self has left me seeping through a fog towards a separate reality, which engulfs and dissolves this self. This has nothing to do with the suspicious thoughts or voices. It is purely a distorted state of being. The clinical symptoms come and go, but this nothingness of the self Is permanently there. And this is a pictorial account uh, from an article in the New York Times earlier this year of what it might be like for one person to suffer from auditory hallucinations. Uh, Another account, I chose this picture because this chap, Brian Charnley, was particularly good, I think, at representing his experiences of his his illness artistically. Uh, And this is his uh, pictorial representation of his experience of the symptom of thought broadcasting. It's relatively rare. It's virtually diagnostic of schizophrenia, if you do see it, where people experience their thoughts not being private to them anymore. It's like their thoughts are broadcast to the outside world. The outside world is aware of what they are thinking, which uh, I imagine you can think of certain situations, lots of situations perhaps, where you wouldn't want people thinking, knowing what you're thinking. And he said that his mind was thought broadcasting very severely and it was beyond his will to do anything about it. He summed this up by painting his brain as an enormous mouth acting independently of him. Um, and he goes on to say, the foot that is pushing up to the head is opening up the mouth for thoughts to be broadcast. I feel, almost, I, I feel I, I'm always divided against myself by myself. Again, the nail in the mouth rep- expresses my social ineptitude and an inability to socialize, which makes me a target. I feel like I'm giving off strong vibrations. He published this account on 18th of May two, 1991 and tragically took his life only two months later, as happens in between... 5 and 10% of people with schizophrenia uh, end their lives that way. But that is obviously by no means the most common cause of death. The most common causes of death are cancer and heart disease, um, as in the general population. And we'll come back to that point in a minute. Um, this is a, another person with, with really quite bad schizophrenia. Ellen Sachs is very open about it. She's written this, this very affecting first-person account, which is probably the best Single recent book about schizophrenia from a from a from a sufferer's perspective, if you want to pick, pick one out. And Oliver Sacks said that this is the most lucid and hopeful memoir of living with schizophrenia I've ever read. She eventually responded to clozapine, the the, the if there is an atypical antipsychotic drug uh, that touches uh, the parts of schizophrenia that other antipsychotic drugs. Don't, then it is clozapine. She's gone on to be an associate professor of law despite uh, very many severe episodes of schizophrenia. She says a psychotic episode is like a waking nightmare. It's terrifying and confusing. And when you have cancer, people send you flowers, but when you lose the mind, they don't. They tend to shun you, uh, and perhaps your family and friends disown you. And for that reason, amongst others, the editor of Nature in 1988 famously described schizophrenia as arguably the worst disease affecting mankind, even AIDS not accepted. At that time, AIDS was very much uh, to the forefront of people's concerns from a medical perspective. But schizophrenia lays people low generally uh, early in their life, very often in their prime, typically in their 20s, um, sometimes in their late teens. And as a consequence, they are transformed from people capable of contributing to the well-being of society into people who are dependent upon it and sometimes disruptive of it. Um, And medically, um, it still remains uh, fascinating but puzzling, uh, baffling and frustrating to try and get a good handle on what exactly schizophrenia is. And I'll try and give you some clues and some information about that. In the time being, at this kind of point in this in this kind of lecture, I often say that I'm very glad I don't have schizophrenia, and I would much rather develop uh, Alzheimer's disease, perhaps in five or ten years. Maybe some people think I'm already beginning to develop it. I don't know, but the, uh, I would certainly rather have ha, die from a heart attack in, in tomorrow than have had schizophrenia uh, for the past twenty years, as I might have done, because I don't think I'd be standing here if I had developed schizophrenia twenty years ago. Um, and so I think, I think for that reason, and others that you maybe have been introduced to, schizophrenia is uh, certainly one of the worst conditions affecting my mind, and arguably the worst. So what do we know about it? Well, above all, we know that it runs in families. This is a, a very important slide. It's a book by Irv Gottesman, where he basically synthesized all the family studies that had been done during the 20th century, and boiled uh, the essence of what we know about the about the, the, family hist- the, the tendency for schizophrenia to run in families into one uh, very helpful graph. And you can actually take an awful lot of information out of this. But if you take the, the lifetime risk of schizophrenia at 1%, which is much more common than most of you will probably have expected, you will see that the risk of schizophrenia gradually increases up to around about 50%, depending on your genetic closeness to an affected person. So, if you have the same genes, as you have an identical twin with some of the schizophrenia, your risk of developing it is 50-50. That clearly shows two things. One, it is very highly genetic. Two, it is by no means entirely genetic. So, schizophrenia is an example par excellence of a condition uh, where genes interact with environment uh, to produce uh, the... Uh, symptoms, delusions, and hallucinations that get called schizophrenia. The, gene- the kind of environmental factors that have been implicated in particular are cannabis uh, use during the teens and other uh, hallucinogenic and stimulating drugs uh, in the teens and 20s. Your risk is still elevated to about 10% on average if you share about 50% of your genes with your first degree relatives. So your mum and dad, your sibs any children that you may have, if they have schizophrenia, your risk is elevated to about 10%, so about tenfold compared to the baseline population risk of about 1%. And even if you have second-degree relatives, you still have a slightly elevated risk. So, I think I've probably given, given the answer away already here, but um, how common is schizophrenia? Well, you might think it's more common than muscular dystrophy, um, probably more common than multiple sclerosis. I don't know you hear quite a lot about it in the papers, but then you hear quite a lot about multiple sclerosis in the papers as well. And surely it's not as common as Alzheimer's disease because everyone's banging on about that all the time. Well, of course, the true answer is that schizophrenia is roughly, in terms of its prevalence, in terms of the number of people that are living daily with schizophrenia in Edinburgh, Scotland, the UK, the world, today, it's about as common as Alzheimer's disease. Now, Alzheimer's disease is, also, is obviously becoming more common, um, and is only one cause of dementia. But schizophrenia um, is a remarkably prevalent condition. It's only one cause of psychosis, and if you lump it together with bipolar disorder, the psychoses are probably about have a similar prevalence in the population as a whole to the dementias. So it's not a rare condition. What we know about some of the genetic factors that are implicated, well, we probably have identified in excess of 100 genes now uh, from global efforts that increase the risk of schizophrenia. They are all of remarkably small effect. They probably only increase the risk by 1 or 2% in each case. And how they work to produce schizophrenia or increase the risk is largely unknown. It may be that if you've got, for example, 100 of these genes, you're virtually guaranteed to get schizophrenia. It may be that if you've got 50, then perhaps... Uh, you would need to puff the wacky-backy for an awful long time uh, to develop schizophrenia a few years later. It may be that if you've got five or ten of the genes, you may not uh, get schizophrenia other than uh, extreme circumstances of one sort or another. But there are these particular genetic variants where one ends up with copies or deletions of a particular gene, um, particularly in certain chromosomes that have been implicated in schizophrenia again and again and again. Uh, That probably account. The best estimates are for up to five percent of cases of schizophrenia. So we are beginning to get a genetic handle on schizophrenia, and the challenge now is to identify how these hundred or more genes may interact uh, and go on to increase the risk for schizophrenia. The other thing that's been uh, come to light recently is the, the NMDA receptor antibody story. So it's become increasingly clear. Uh, And this is a a, uh, startling account of this on YouTube. If you want to type in uh, Susanna Callahan or Month of Madness uh, as an example of this kind of condition, it's become increasingly clear that there are autoantibodies, antibodies antibodies generated by the body that can attack the brain, specifically this NMDA receptor, which has been implicated in schizophrenia and psychotic illness in many, in in very many ways, uh, and can produce a picture that is very similar to acute schizophrenia. Um, whether this is a separate condition or whether this accounts for up to 5% of cases of schizophrenia as looks probable remains to be uh, finalised. But it's, it's another example, if you like, of uh, an organic or a physical cause for what we might think of as a mental illness. So we're, we're getting a handle on what causes schizophrenia, slowly but surely. It takes time uh, The the pace of progress is frustratingly slow, but it is nonetheless progress. And we also have very effective treatments for schizophrenia. There's a bit of a myth around that there aren't effective treatments for schizophrenia. They're by no means curative, but then most of modern medicine doesn't cure much. Uh, You you take uh, very many medications lifelong, Uh, and there's a case that at least some people with schizophrenia need lifelong antipsychotic treatment similarly. So to take the example of managing the acute episode of schizophrenia, if you give someone like chlorpromazine, you are probably using one of the best evidence-supported treatments in medicine, and you're also using one of the most potent treatments in medicine in terms of reducing the delusions and hallucinations of acute schizophrenia. So this is a summary from the Cochrane collaboration, which is widely regarded as the best uh, and most impartial uh, synthesizer of medical evidence about treatments for everything, um, this is the chlopromazine review, fifty randomized controlled trials over the past fifty or so years, uh, a total uh, number of patients and controls of more than three thousand uh, and that 's really overwhelming evidence that about fifty five percent of patients in these trial very carefully controlled trial settings will get about fifty percent improvement in ratings of delusions and hallucinations over something like six weeks compared to 37% given placebo, that's a very high placebo response rate, and probably related to things like these trials being conducted in the setting of people being admitted to hospital, and perhaps receiving other treatments and other ministrations. But nonetheless, there's a, there's a 55 versus 37% difference in response, uh, 18% uh, greater response overall to these drugs in a, in over a period of about six weeks. And you can translate that if you'd Um, take the inverse of that number Um, if you imagine that the average person gets 18% better then that means approximately 6 people need to be prescribed clopromazine rather than placebo to derive that kind of benefit that might seem like not a particularly impressive number but it's a much lower number than for for statins for example to reduce the risk of another heart attack, for antihypertensive to reduce the chances of a stroke uh, and for aspirin Uh, to reduce the chance of a stroke, for example. Admittedly, uh, and I don't want you going away thinking that these drugs are curative or harmless, um, they have very nasty side effects. So there's basically a 50-50 chance whether you will put on a significant amount of weight over those six weeks. Uh, There's a 20% chance or about one in five people will develop significant sedation as a consequence of taking this treatment, and about one in ten will have significant Parkinsonism. So, but... The other thing about these treatments is they, once you are better, they keep you well. This is uh, probably, certainly the longest-lasting randomized controlled trial recently, um, and this is done uh, by a guy called Eric Chen in Hong Kong. Uh, I sh- Quetiapine is now a generic drug. Nobody's got any interest in pushing it uh, for any financial reasons, I don't think. And this is a brilliant one-year-long randomized controlled trial of people Who had remitted first episode psychosis, so they've got treated uh, with quetiapine as part of their first episode of a psychotic illness, and then they were followed and and randomized either to quetiapine, this antipsychotic drug, or placebo, and then they were followed up for 360 days, about a year. And you can see what happens is that quetiapine is far from curative; it's far from perfect at keeping people well. About. 60% 60% of people will be relapse-free. So 40% will have relapsed over the course of a year, despite continuing to take uh, quetiapine. But look at the relapse rate in people on placebo. Um, there's only now let's be generous, 25% of people are relapse-free. 75% of people have had a relapse, compared to about 40%. So that's a 35% difference. It Equates to roughly one in three people benefiting from taking this drug for a year, in terms of reducing their chances of having another episode of psychosis. And it's, I think it's difficult to overestimate the impact of a second episode of psychosis in these kind of people. I think one episode, people might say, oh, it's just the drugs, it's just a one-off, family and friends will probably stick by them, but employers would probably understand. But by the time people are showing, you know, this is, this is a bit of a habit, this guy's gone mad again... Uh, can I really continue to employ him? Is his behaviour really um, so understandable? Is it not part and parcel of him? I think people become less tolerant. And certainly, if you speak to patients with chronic schizophrenia, their friends seem to have melted away. Uh, there are no flowers or fruit beside their beds in the Royal Edinburgh Hospital. Uh, and even sometimes families uh, uh, give up on them, it's sad to say. The other thing about these antipsychotic medications is they actually save lives, um, This is not shown by randomized controlled trials uh, for various reasons. There is some data to suggest that. But this is convincing follow-up data from the entire population of Finland done by a guy called Tihonen. He's done a few studies like this, and these have been replicated in other places around the world. But he shows you that if you stay on antipsychotic medication, if you have schizophrenia, it reduces your risk of suicide about 37 times, and it actually reduces your chance of death from any cause about 12 times. Why that is, we're not entirely clear. It's probably something to do with continuing to look after yourself better if you are on medication. Uh, the medication has side effects, as I've said, but it, uh, overall, uh, it's generally better for people with schizophrenia to take it for a year or two at least uh, and then see how they go. And a good part of a, a, a good psychiatrist's work is identifying the lowest possible dose of antipsychotic with a patient. Uh, And identifying the right time if there is one to try and stop the drug and see how it goes. Uh, But the worst thing people can do after a first episode of psychosis or schizophrenia is to stop the drug precipitously themselves because they will almost certainly become unwell again. So these are the kind of reasons I think that we would want a diagnostic test for schizophrenia. It is surprisingly common. About 1% of the population um, will get a schizophreniform illness, and about half a percent of the population will develop an ongoing schizophrenic condition. And that means that schizophrenia itself accounts for 2% of the entire global burden of disease. It makes it one of the most burdensome conditions for humankind. It tends to affect people when they're 25. It doesn't go away, usually. Uh, It relapses and remits. Some people have chronic symptoms from the off. Uh, And most, 80%, will not work or live independently. There are the occasional lucky few, like Ellen Sachs or the neuroscientists I mentioned earlier, who uh, amazingly do manage to do that. it's characterized by these auditory hallucinations or voices and these bizarre or persecutory delusions which I've introduced you to. And they do tend to respond to drugs. Unfortunately, the drugs have adverse effects. And things like thought disorder... I've mentioned, and the negative symptoms that people with schizophrenia often have do not tend to respond to treatment. And those are where the big treatment needs are, is in terms of developing treatments that could improve uh, the management of those aspects of the condition. Negative symptoms of schizophrenia are often the most troublesome to relatives, because the patient with schizophrenia, it's like uh, they lack energy, motivation or enthusiasm for doing anything. And their mums and dads often end up very frustrated with them because when they lie, want to just lie around in bed or watch the TV all day, they think they're just being lazy. Well, they're probably not being archetypically lazy. Uh, in adolescence, they are expressing the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. So, we're, where have we got to on the trail for a diagnostic test for schizophrenia? Well, it's worth mentioning that the, the, uh, a hundred years or so ago, uh, the, the, the two men who probably did most to uh, develop the concept of schizophrenia uh, were firmly of the opinion that schizophrenia had an organic basis, that there was something to detect in the brain that was associated with schizophrenia. So on the left we have Emil Kreplin who described 1,000 patients in Heidelberg before moving to Munich and then describing another 500 uh, and his book should be required reading I think for every psychiatrist. He makes uh, very uh, uh, poignant um, and um, startling sometimes descriptions of, the, of some of his patients. and then, But he called it dementia precox, which is an unfortunate name. Uh, precocious dementia um, is not a concept that patients particularly want to hear about, and it's not true. There are some people, a, a, a tiny minority, who do seem to have a relentless progressive course to their schizophrenia from the off. But it's not a good name generally. And uh, Eugene Bloyler came up with Uh, An alternative, schizophrenia, a split mind, not a split personality, um, which is probably a better name. But, of course, it now seems to have become um, linked in people's minds with split personality, Uh, and that has nothing to do with schizophrenia if it exists at all. So, the next, I think, these these guys um, postulated that there was some cerebral aspect to the illness. Uh, They couldn't really prove it. They did do some post-mortem work and um, did show reductions in brain weight um, compared to what they expected, but they they couldn't really do rigorous science in those days in that way. They also looked at bits of brain down a microscope. But schizophrenia is not that simple. You know, if you could look down a microscope and see schizophrenia, we'd have sorted it years ago. Um, The first big clue, I think, to... Um, there being not just an organic basis to, or at least an organic associate of schizophrenia, uh, but also that, that we could develop a diagnostic test, came, um, surprise, surprise, from the person who introduced me tonight, Eve Johnson, working with Tim Crow at Northwick Park in London. They used this uh, remarkable technology at the time, computerised tomography, which now looks little better than, you know, taking a photograph of a skull. But you could see... Um, Here, a patient with really bad chronic schizophrenia has enlarged lateral ventricles there, and you can perhaps see a bit of cortical widening and reduced cortical substance there compared to what might be regarded as a normal brain. And Eve painstakingly uh, measured these ventricles um, in... Uh, Some patients with chronic schizophrenia and healthy controls and the y-axis is worth a careful read here This is from the original description of the Lancet paper in 1976 It says this is the ventricular size on photographs in square centimeters an average of four measurements And what that means is that Eve put tracing paper on these scans drew around them counted the number of squares in the tracing paper and did that four times to get a reasonably reliable average and compared the patients and controls that way. And that study has remarkably been replicated probably hundreds of times, but it was the first of its kind at that time. Um, And fortunately, technology has advanced somewhat since those days. We don't have to trace the brains onto uh, tracing paper and count the squares. It's interesting to, to still, I think, to think about how that paper was received in 1976, there were a few august professors of neurology who wrote into The Lancet, uh, one saying, schizophrenia is a functional disorder, there cannot be an organic basis, Um, which seems to be uh, someone who's got caught up with definitions rather than things. And there's famously at the Institute of Psychiatry, which was and arguably still is the the premier institution uh, for academic psychiatry in the UK, possibly uh, it is certainly a, a very important institution worldwide. But f- one of the professors at the Institute of Psychiatry had uh, on the edition of The Lancet that this paper appeared in scrawled in big writing rubbish right across the first page. So you can get an, you get an impression uh, ten years after people were thinking had promoted the idea of sane reactions to insane societies and schizophrenic mums. Uh, you can get an impression of, of the resistance that this kind of Uh, finding met. Magnetic resonance imaging was the next imaging tool on the block and that has undoubtedly been a major advance. It doesn't involve x-rays like computerized tomography and you can get much more detailed pictures of brain structures. So not only can you see the ventricles and the cortical sulci here, you can begin to get an impression. These These are rather old images now, 20 years ago. But you can see certainly these days in scans the hippocampus uh, bits of the temporal lobe, superior temporal cortex, middle, inferior, and so on and so forth. This is the brain stem. These are your ears. And um, you can, uh, what, what Richard Sudath and colleagues did and published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1990 was compare identical twins uh, with and without schizophrenia. They found 15 in the whole of America, so this is not you know, a simple endeavor. Uh, but when one does this kind of experiment, it has remarkable impact. So you could eyeball... Uh, the effects of schizophrenia on the brain in 13 or 14, depending on what you looked at, of the 15 pairs. So here, I think everyone could probably see that this person's lateral ventricles are larger than his or hers unaffected twin with schizophrenia. And there are other bits of the brain you could probably argue for that as well. So if you have, if you like, a perfect genetic control for the gene and environmental control for your brain, you can actually eyeball the effects of schizophrenia. You can see it on a scan. The problem is when you're dealing with uh, older patients, very few of them have an identical twin to do that kind of study with. But this kind of alludes to the possibility that you could eyeball or otherwise process brain images and use them as a diagnostic test. And that was one of the bases of the Edinburgh High Risk Study that that, uh, EVE set up in about 1995, funded by two MRC program grants, and for which uh, I was fortunate enough to be responsible for the imaging aspects of. And the basic idea was combining these twin pillars of wisdom about schizophrenia, that it runs in families, it's probably genetic, and it's associated with brain imaging abnormalities. Can we therefore use brain imaging to detect who's going to become ill before they become ill? And the short answer is yes. So what this study did was it took 162 relatives of schizophrenia, uh, unaffected young people with an average age of 21, mostly had uh, one first-degree relative, a mom, a dad, a brother or a sister. Sometimes they had two secondary relatives, a gran, an aunt, a or whatever. Uh, and we basically followed them up every two years or so with a clinical interview, cognitive testing, and a brain scan to see what happened to their... Uh, to their brain and function as some of them went on to get schizophrenia. And 21 did get schizophrenia, tragically. Um, they went from being uh, essentially no different to healthy controls to an average age of 21. Um, social class, broadly similar background. Most of them importantly, most of these young people with uh, an increased genetic loading of schizophrenia were in employment or in higher education. There was, to all intents and purposes, nothing wrong with them. Um, But 21 of them, tragically, did go on to get schizophrenia an average two and a half years after the first assessment that we did. And they went in the main, so many of them were students. Uh, I don't think any of the ones that were students graduated. Uh, And so you can see the impact of schizophrenia. It affects anybody uh, and it generally is not uh, a good thing. So one of the things that we've been able to do is address... These are uh, relatively good MRI images. Actually, this is from um, a relatively weak scanner at the city hospital, which we used in the late 1990s. But you can, be, you can see the level of detail. You can clearly see the difference between the grey matter on the outside of the brain and the white matter. You can see different bits of the brain quite nicely and clearly and you can, you can see other bits of the head and neck that I won't bother you with. But one of the things that we did uh, was try and look at different ways of using this imaging data to predict schizophrenia. And I've got three separate examples, which I hope I won't bore you unduly with. Um, the first thing that we found was from one single snapshot scan at the start of the study, there we, this right bit of the brain, the right prefrontal cortex here, so it's as if you're looking at the front of somebody's head, with the skull taken off, this right-splided prefrontal cortex was, was hyper-folded, was excessively folded. That took us by surprise an awful lot. Um, but we did a number of analyses that showed that poor old Jonathan Harris hand-traced in and out all of these sulci on every single 2 millimetre slice uh, through 120-odd slices on about 32 brains. Uh, and lived to tell the tale. Um, I think, yeah, he did. I don't know what he's doing now. I think he's working fine. And um, showed and on hand-drawn image processing techniques, you could develop, you could distinguish schizophrenia using this technique. And then Bill Moorehead, an engineer in our lab, uh, automated this procedure, much to Jonathan's chagrin, a few years later, and showed uh, at an optimal cutoff being able to distinguish people who did or did not get schizophrenia. Uh, for an equal misclassification cost, that's a bit technical, but it basically means we don't quite know whether to wait the diagnostic test towards picking up more cases or having fewer false uh, negatives. But long uh, and short of it, we could pick up, we could predict schizophrenia in 11 of the 17 people who had a scan and went on to get it after the scan from this hyper-folding. On average, about two and a half years before they get it. That's quite impressive predictive power, but it's not great in practice. I mean, it would be maybe uh, this is where we stray into ethical territory and where your opinion, uh, and particularly the opinion of these people at high risk, is more valid uh, or as valid as mine. But the, you know, would you have a diagnostic test at a two-thirds chance of showing you were going to get schizophrenia two and a half years from now? Probably not. It depends on the treatment. Well, we've got these antipsychotic drugs that make you stiff, slow, and make you put on weight. But they might reduce the risk. Uh, no, thanks, Doctor. I think I'll leave it. Thank you very much. So you can imagine, maybe, though, if they had psychotic symptoms, they had a really strong family history, maybe they would be more inclined to take antipsychotic drugs in that kind of context. And maybe they would um, for other reasons as well. The big problem with this test is that it falsely diagnoses a third of people who do not get schizophrenia. So if you take off the 21 from the 162, it leaves you about 140. So using this kind of approach, we'd have told about 35 young people, you're going to get schizophrenia in two and a half years, and they don't. And that would be, you know, catastrophic generally for their lives. Um, it would probably affect their insurance immediately. Um, and it would probably impact upon them adversely psychologically, even if they didn't go on to get the illness. So that's clearly not good enough. What we did, because we had serial MRI scans, we um, were able to look at changes in grey matter over time as people develop schizophrenia. Now, despite the massive cost and effort in terms of time and data acquisition uh, in this study, we have down to a relatively small number of scans now, of people who had two scans before they went on to get schizophrenia. We have eight people in the high risk group who got schizophrenia on average about six months after the second scan. But what you see here is uh, these yellow blobs or hot spots show gray matter change in these high risk subjects with psychotic symptoms who had two scans. Um, what the green arrows show are the additional changes. In those who had psychotic symptoms and went on to get schizophrenia. So this analysis is becoming more clinically useful. We, this is like having a patient in front of you with psychotic symptoms, with a family history of schizophrenia, and you say, well, we could do two scans, and that will tell us with some kind of utility what your chances are of getting schizophrenia. Uh, so you, and, and that's the kind of situation where having a scan or two would be most useful because the patients are clinically identical. They both have psychotic symptoms, for example, but one's going to get schizophrenia and one is not. And so you would need some kind of additional diagnostic information to try and help you decide, should they get treatment uh, or should some other intervention be planned? And so when we looked at taking a cutoff of grey matter loss over time, we could correctly identify five of the eight people who went on to schizophrenia, uh, six months or so after the second scan. So that's quite good. It's about 60-something percent. Um, And the false positive diagnosis rate was only about 10%. So that's beginning to become something that you might want to consider. Again, it depends on the individual. It depends on the context. um, And would the NHS want to fund two MRI scans for everyone at high risk of schizophrenia? Probably not. But it's beginning to show promise. And then the third example I want to show you is probably the most potent example we've got. We used functional MRI, which is a way of looking at brain function in the scanner. We asked people to complete sentences in a scanner. Um, And we then uh, compared the analysis, uh, looking at this data a couple of ways. We looked at their activation in the lingual gyrus, in the visual cortex, uh, while they were reading the sentences, and uh, we plotted that against the, informi- the activation in the parietal cluster uh, here as they were thinking of a word to complete the sentence. And if you look at those two, you can construct a cutoff where the four people, and we're down to four only people here, I'm afraid, who had an fMRI scan and went on to get, get schizophrenia could be t- separated from those with psychotic symptoms who didn't get schizophrenia or those without psychotic symptoms who didn't get schizophrenia. So that's got an 80% uh, power to pick up schizophrenia here between 1 and 15 months before the diagnosis. And that's quite impressive. Now, I think I should wake you up after quite so much data and show you what it's like to have a brain scan. Because that might not appeal to you or it may. So to do it, this is a willing volunteer, otherwise known as a PhD student, <laughs> who's been told to have, to, been asked to do, have this scan. It's, I think it's actually John Clayton, but anyway. Um, and you see you lie in a bed flat, it uh, ramps up, And then it slides into this large washing machine-like structure. Uh, The head coil, so-called, is this bit here, and that's the bit that acquires the image. Uh, And this is uh, some fancy piece of kit that magnetizes water, particularly proton ions in your brain, so that you can then flip them between different states and build up pictures of brain structure and brain function. It's an amazing kit. So you slide quite a way in. But you can get out again. And uh, you might think... Some people do find it a bit claustrophobic, but it's, it's, uh, it's not uh, too bad. I've had about 20 scans myself and have not had any adverse effects. It can be a bit loud in there, though. So, um, remarkably... Uh, People managed to fall asleep in the scanner despite that. <laughs> and um, most people can tolerate scans remarkably well. Uh, and we've, we did some qualitative study with patients actually recently and asked them about their experiences of scanning and cognitive testing where you get them to do you know, memory tests, for example, and pen and paper. And they said they hated the memory tests on pen and paper because <laughs> it made them feel really foolish whereas they didn't mind the scans at all because they got a wee lie down and a rest. So, uh, you know, what it differs from... People differ, obviously, but in general, scanning is quite an acceptable uh, way of acquiring information. So, I think I'll... I'll, Yeah, I will do that. So, uh, to summarise the data part of the talk, um, the overall risk in the high-risk study... Uh, from those being from multiply-affected families at high genetic risk, was about 13%. uh, That's 21 out of 162. About a quarter of those 162 had a psychotic symptom at any point in time over the course of the 5 to 10 years of the study, depending on how long they were involved. But Sorry, it was nearer a half. But it was only about a quarter of them who went on to get schizophrenia. So three-quarters of those with psychotic symptoms didn't get schizophrenia. So that's not a very good diagnostic test. Uh, and in the rest of medicine, most people have advanced beyond just uh, basing diagnostic and prognostic uh, estimations uh, on uh, history uh, information. We did, one gen- we did a bunch of genetic tests, and there was one gene that could identify people who were going to go on schizophrenia with about 39% predictive power or if you had a certain genetic liability, uh, 39% of them went on to get it. And then I've introduced these three imaging measures, which all did better. So the prefrontal cortical folding uh, was quite good at predicting cases, but was terrible. It had an un- unacceptably high uh, false positive diagnosis rate. Left temporal lobe loss was better, but you know, two scans is a bit awkward to do. Uh, you're going to lose lots of people between the scans. Some will become ill between the scans. Uh, and functional MRI... Um, is most promising as a diagnostic test from this particular data set. Um, but is also the most difficult technically and probably about twice as expensive on average. Chuffs for your information, uh, depending on how much your local radiology department is uh, ripping you off for your scans, sorry, charging for your scans, it's about 100 to £150 pounds for a 15-minute structural scan um, it's about well anything between three and five hundred pounds for a functional MRI scan, depending on how long it takes. Um, but we've done better. Um, so all of these all of these analyses were just looking at one thing, one extracting one piece of information from the brain, whereas typically these images have something like forty to sixty thousand individual items of information in them. And so we're not making proper use of the data that we have. Uh, and together with a PhD student, Eleni Zarogiani, uh, Bill Moorhead, our engineer, and Amos Storkey, who's an informatician in the informatics department here, we've been comparing different ways um, here of actually diagnosing schizophrenia in with this imaging profile in 17 subjects at high risk who had a scan and went on to get schizophrenia compared to 17 matched, again, with psychotic symptoms who did not go on to get, who did not go on to get schizophrenia. And we can, uh, using this Uh, complex technique, which I won't begin to try to explain, you can see that we can get, using, extracting 37 pieces of information uh, from one structural MRI scan, we can get up to certainly an excess of about 90% uh, accuracy overall um, in terms of diagnosing schizophrenia from one scan two and a half years before onset. That becomes quite powerful diagnostic test and one which arguably should be available to people who have uh, those sorts of concerns. Now, those of you who know about this or just who have good common sense realize, you know, one swallow does not make a summer. This is just one analysis of one study. But fortunately, we have, uh, there are people around the world doing these sorts of analyses in similar studies. So uh, people in London, Basel in Switzerland, Munich in Germany, Uh, Melbourne in Australia uh, a few sites in America are all doing these kind of analyses and uh, the results across them are remarkably consistent and we've begun the process of being able to test our predictive analysis in their data and vice versa and I think it's for that reason uh, that the European Union has recently decided to invest no less than 25 million euros in this collective endeavour. I think if you're not persuaded by my few slides uh, that we may be on the uh, brink of developing a diagnostic or predictive test of schizophrenia, you might trust the Eurocrats, although you probably you shouldn't. Uh, but nonetheless, they are investing 25 million euros over the next three to four years in these sorts of centres across Europe uh, and pulling in global expertise to do the sorts of analyses to try and develop magnetic resonance imaging and other diagnostic imaging tests for schizophrenia. And I I really think that uh, diagnostic imaging in psychosis and possibly in severe depression as well, its time has come. It's only a a matter of a few years before we could be using this technology to make early diagnoses of schizophrenia and hopefully, although this is not yet shown, be able to predict who needs a particular drug, who would benefit from it. Who's not going to benefit it? Because we don't want to prescribe a drug unless they need it. And who might, for example, benefit from other approaches like cognitive therapy? And I just want to give you one other um, taste of the kind of uh, research activity that's going on here in Edinburgh and around the world that I think could revolutionise our, our management uh, of schizophrenia and a whole approach to it uh, in the next few years. This is using stem and cell biology, which I guess you'll have heard of uh, in the media and may have been witnessed one or two talks here. Uh, But basically in Edinburgh, through pooling our expertise in family-based studies, uh, long-term cohort studies, and and deep phenotyping, as it's called, which is taking an awful lot of information from patients, um, with the expertise in the MRC unit, uh, MRC Centre for Regenerative Medicine, which do things like reprogramming uh, cells into neurons, electrophysiology, and cultural assays of those cells, and together with uh, colleagues at the Institute of Genetics and Molecular Medicine, who are experts in molecular biology, we're at a stage where we can do this sort of thing. So we can take a skin biopsy from anyone, uh, from a patient with schizophrenia, for example. You can add three, uh, three or a few chemicals to overexpress three or four genes, and you can turn a fibroblast skin cell into pluripotent stem cell. And then you can encourage that pluripotent stem cell with a few more chemicals... Uh, to develop itself into a young, immature brain cell. Uh, and it takes about 40 days to grow a four-brain neuron, and it takes about 100 days to grow uh, a, a supporting neuron, sometimes called a, a glial cell. So we're not quite at the stage where, you know, you could get your skin biopsy here and walk round to the corner of the building and pick up your stem cells at the other end. But we are at the stage where we can take people, for example, with known genetic anomalies... Uh, grow their brain cells in a dish, uh, examine in which ways those brain cells may not function optimally with electrophysiological and other assays, and examine the effects of drugs, either existing drugs or novel treatments, on those physiological properties in those cells. And that is getting us very close. There's a lot of time and expense and still a lot of science to be done uh, around the the edges in that overall picture. But that is getting us very close to what could be a personalized psychiatry. So um, you could, uh, we could, we were, we were actively trying to get money out to do this, the, this study in a multiply affected family with schizophrenia who have a known genetic anomaly. Uh, and I, th- I think we will do in the, sh- in the not too distant future. There's a couple of people in the department who are pursuing this strategy with other people with known genetic anomalies. I think it's just a matter of time before we can use this, the power of this information to be able to develop treatments that work uh, on a patient's brain cultured in a dish, so to speak. So, I'm going to stop there and leave a few minutes for questions, uh, and there's plenty of time for discussion uh, afterwards if you want to ask me anything there. But I hope I've shown you that schizophrenia usually develops around the age of 25, and at the very least it stops people realizing their potential. Um, that there are effective treatments for some aspects of schizophrenia, uh, but, and they may be more effective if we can apply them earlier. Um, uh, it's often one or two years between the, between the symptoms coming on and someone coming to treatment for various reasons. and Maybe some of the existing treatments would work better uh, just in the context of an earlier diagnostic test using the imaging out- approach I've outlined. But brain imaging techniques are certainly advanced to the stage uh, in our centre and a few others around the world where you can predict schizophrenia with something of more than 90% accuracy and might be able to predict those who would respond to particular types of treatment. And I think that the combination of genetics, imaging and stem cell biology uh, offers the very real potential of us being able to develop uh, what might be called personalised preventative psychiatry. Thank you for your attention.
0: This production...